Broadcasting from within the borders of the greatest success story the world has ever known, the United States of America. It's time for an honest discussion from a fresh, new conservative voice. The C.L. Bryant Show. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, throughout the fruited plains of the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known, and that is America. Welcome to the C.L. Bryant Show. I am C.L. Bryant, and I want to thank each and every one of you for coming along with us daily as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation right here on the C.L. Bryant Show every day from 12.05 in the east until 2 p.m. And I want to thank our flagship station, Red State Talk Radio. And if you're traveling through Times Square, be sure to look up above Ripley's Believe It or Not. And every hour, the C.L. Bryant Show does pop up on the Red State Talk billboard there in Times Square. And old C.L.'s face looking right back at you. I want to thank Urban Fan Family Talk and also Loving Liberty, uh, various other platforms for carrying our show in rerun every day as well in terrestrial across the fruited plains. Well, folks, it is a great day in the USA, and as long as we keep building bridges to conversation like the one we're going to build today, uh, I think it will remain a great day in our nation as we wake up from day to day as God has blessed us from sea to shining sea. One of our native sons, a friend of mine and uh, a prolific author in this country, Eric Rush, is my guest uh, in this hour. And I want to uh, have you welcome him back to the C.L. Bryant Show. He is the author of the groundbreaking book, and many have said that it is the book to read if you want to understand the psyche of the black man in America. Eric Rush, welcome back to the C.L. Bryant Show. How are you, brother? I am doing well. Great to talk to you. Always good to talk to you as well, Eric. And uh, hey, man, we got a lot to cover. But before we get into all of that, tell the audience uh, just how to get in touch with you and your work. Uh, if, in fact, they want to bring you to their church, uh, social groups, civic centers in their cities. Oh, sure. Um, well, I have a uh, weekly column on WorldNet Daily. That's WND.com. And my um, website is EricRush.com. That's E-R-I-K-R-U-S-H.com. And uh, you, I can get I can be contacted through either of those. The web, my website's probably easier. There's a contact form on it. Um, yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. 
Absolutely it is. And Eric, uh, when we uh, look at the works that you have done, I like to look at the historical values that uh, people like yourself bring to the American landscape and conversation at this time. You know, I uh, have known this for years, but I don't think you and I have ever talked about it. And that is uh, how you grew up. I'm talking about your household. I understand your mom was uh, a a dance troupe uh, organizer, and it was uh, one that... Uh, did in fact uh, uh, cater or at least uh, express uh, the African uh, flavoring uh, as far as drums and that type of thing is concerned. The reason I bring that up is this. You have a historical perspective on black folks in this country. You're just a few years, a couple of years younger than I am. And so we bring to the table Uh a historical outlook on where black folks were and where we are at this point in time. Eric, give us an idea of your insight into the evolution of the American black man from the time that you and I were growing up to this point in time. Are we still in 1960s, 1970s? Talk to us about the evolution. <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting. And I, and I did, you know, I, I do lead with this quite often because, you know, people do want to know where I'm where I'm coming from. And, you know, it makes it kind of frustrating to hear, you know, young black people talking like it's still 1955. But, you know, I grew up in, you know, I was born in 1961. Um, my parents were interracial. My mom was black. My dad was white. And, you know, for that reason, and maybe a couple of others, I was very conscious of what was going on in the country with regard to the civil rights movement and changes that were coming in, you know, along. I mean, I remember picking up the newspaper one morning and seeing the the photo of the balcony with Dr. King laying on it and everybody pointing. And, you know, I mean, I I have a distinct memory of that and the things that were going on. And what really, you know, kind of irked me in hindsight was seeing, you know, despite the inequity and despite that the um, bad feelings that were, being expressed in many areas, there was a great deal of hope, you know, with the civil rights movement and some of the people who were coming out in politics who were trying to do things for people in the black community. There was a lot of hope. And then seeing the subsequent generation or generations of young black people dropping out and falling into this super secular self-destructive self-destructive sort of modality which was completely driven by the the far left was really really a a very sad you know a, a very sad thing to witness so you know my perspective is i consider my perspective to be very well rounded um in that respect 
And it was. Eric, I've been, in, as you know, uh, in an interracial marriage for uh, over 40 years now, and I understand uh-huh. exactly where you're coming from. It does give you the view from both sides. And saying that, let me ask you this, because I've, I've spoken on this topic uh, around the country, still do. Um, as you and I become, began to come of age, uh, shows began to pop up. And I'm going somewhere with this, folks, so you hang in with us because we're going to bring this all the way up to the reparations that Danny Glover and Cory Booker are, are asking about uh, here today, Ocasio-Cortez. But we want to give you some foundational, uh, some foundation to stand on here. Eric, I remember, and I'm sure you remember it too, when uh, Archie Bunker, Good Times, Chico the Man, and the Man uh, uh, all began to come out. And we laughed at those things and yada, yada. You mentioned the word hindsight. In hindsight, Eric, I'm seeing that those were shows that did, in fact, program a society to laugh at things that uh, would later be used as a tool to shape and socially engineer groups of people. Talk to us about how you may view that yourself. Talk to us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I recently wrote um, over the last couple of months, I think, I wrote an article for World Net Daily that um, the title was um, Blacks Are Blind to Their Own Cultural Enslavement. And in truth, it isn't just black folks um, because it isn't just black folks, but the post-civil rights movement and those TV shows that you're talking about as well as other media, you know, all of that was really driven by the sensibilities that came out of Hollywood. You know, so when you're watching Chico and the Man or All in the Family or the Jeffersons or whatever, you know, um, your people are, you know, seeing what Hollywood wanted them to see in terms of, okay, this is the way black people act, or more germane, this is the way black people are supposed to act, and this is how white people should act toward them and Latinos, and, you know, you just branches out into everything, but the sensibilities are all Hollywood, and, you know, Hollywood has been rife with weirdos since it came into existence, and politically, of course, we, we know that they're firmly, firmly ensconced in, the, in the, the camp of the left. And unfortunately, and we're seeing this, you know, with all of the gangster rap and all of this stuff, you know, although some of the attitudes may have their origin within certain areas of the black community, the, you know, it is these largely white, largely um, far left-leaning record, ex- record executives who are signing these rap who are signing these rap artists to contracts. And these guys are going out and talking about, you know, impregnating all these women and shooting police and all of this stuff. And it's like, uh, time out, guys. You know, you're not, um, you're not promoting music for white kids. 
that, you know, has them going out and destroying themselves, although some still do, but it's in a much smaller percentages than these black kids who are running around with guns, shooting each other, taking drugs, having babies out of wedlock. It is, you know, as you and I both know, a completely unsustainable modality for any community or culture to exist in, yet it's promoted. And heaven forfend you say anything bad about rap because then you're trying to deprive black people of their culture. I mean, they have an answer for everything, don't they? Absolutely, they do, Eric. And, you know, bringing up uh, in the same vein that you were speaking on, we have presidential candidates now who are, uh, in fact, promoting the idea of reparations. I was uh, watching a couple of months ago now uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton's uh, uh, convention of his group there in New York City, and uh, the the Democrat yeah. uh, candidates were there, and Al asked them a question. Are you in favor? Will you uh, uh, promote uh, reparations in this country? And all of them, including Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you name them, uh, they all signed on to that. I see here today that uh, Danny Glover and Cory Booker are, are uh, leading the charge for reparations. Eric, is reparations even possible, plausible, or sensible uh, approach to uh, something that has occurred 150 years ago? Speak on it. Well, I mean, it's it's no more plausible than you know, I, I mean, Jewish people demanding reparations for slavery from the Egyptians. I mean, yeah, granted, it, it, it happened a lot longer ago, but the, the, the logic is the, the same. There are, there are no, you know, I mean, to my knowledge, <laughs> there are no people alive today who were still slaves or slave owners. Um, you know, we don't typically... Uh, past the, you know, we don't typically, it, it isn't codified in our, you know, judicial system where we hold the descendants of people responsible for their forebears' actions. So I don't get it from that point of view. Um, it would be an economic disaster. Um, it would be impossible to also determine who was, quote unquote, eligible for such re- reparations. And and so it's it's really just another, you know, um, freebie, so to speak, that would be coming out of uh, taxpayers' pockets that these Democrats and activists are signing off on because obviously it doesn't cost them anything. And, you know, when we when you talk about that, Eric, uh, I'm I'm thinking of something that uh, a newcomer to the political spectrum is in fact saying, and I think it's going to absolutely be her downfall, and that is that uh, Ocasio Cortez, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, is touting the the uh, idea that somehow what's going on at the border is in fact uh, equivalent to the concentration camps. Uh, Auschwitz, uh, you know, in in Germany. Uh, Eric, uh, does this type of thing help the the Democratic, the progressive liberal Democratic Party at this point in time? Is she a gift that's going to keep on giving? Uh, Should she be reprimanded? Is she to be brought to bear for something, uh, in my uh, opinion, that is so inflammatory? Talk to us. 
Well, you know, leaving aside the fact that I don't know how Ocasio-Cortez can walk and keep her heart beating at the same time, (laughs) um, she, you know, it's horribly inflammatory. I mean, the concentration camps, you know, you you start with that. It's a dog whistle, you know. You, you throw that out there and people see gas chambers and piles of bodies and people getting put into pits and shot in the head. And as far as I know, there's none of that going da- on down at the border right now. You know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, there are people who are in pretty um, dire situations down there in terms of their health and things like that and malnutrition and dehydration. But that's only owing to the fact that these people decided that they were going to walk across the desert for hundreds of miles with no food and little water. And, you know, they, they, end, they wind up here and we're trying to accommodate them as humanely as we can within the law. And for her to say, you know, for her to equate that with the death camps of Nazi Germany really ought to be, you know, on the on the order of of slander or shouting fire in a crowded theater. And, you know, these people, you know, as dumb as she is, she knows that it's a sensitive issue. And in using a language like that, because race, you know, um, issues are such still such a sensitive topic in this country that people are going to have a very strong gut reaction. And so she knows what she's doing, but it's horribly irresponsible. And it is, folks. And Eric, along that line, uh, we've got about two minutes left in this segment, so I'll save this question for the other side of the break. You have written a book uh, about the annexation of Mexico a few years back, several years back now. And I want you to talk about that because, you know, when I was uh, looking at uh, some of the things that we might want to kick around and talk about today with Eric Rush, Eric Rush is my special guest here in uh, this hour. And uh, he is author of a groundbreaking book, one that is absolutely insightful into the mindset of uh, black people in this country. And he comes at it uh, from Evidently, his uh, growing up and and the type of family that he grew up in, he's seen both sides of the street. And many times uh, uh, authors and uh, pundits like Eric Rush, myself, are often called out because some say that we don't have a, a realistic view of our communities and our blackness and all that type of thing. But folks, that is not the truth. We have seen both sides of the street. Eric is born into an interracial family. I've been in an interracial marriage uh, for over 40 years. Uh, interracial children, grandchildren, what have you. We know what we're talking about from the perspective that is necessary to build the bridge to conversation. And that is a two way street. It has to be that we're going to talk with Eric Rush, my special guest, when we return with more of the CL Bryan show. And I'm telling you, folks, a historical perspective from people with insight like Eric and I have had over the years that we've been alive uh, is important to this conversation at this point 
and time. I'm CL. This is the CL Bryant Show. And we're going to come back uh, with Eric Rush after the break. Encourage all of you, if you don't get the full two hours of the CL Bryant Show, be sure to download free the CL Bryant Show app, the CL Bryant Show, in your app store onto your favorite devices. And all of the shows are cataloged right there. Go to the website, theclbryantshow.com. I'll be right back with Eric Rush. Don't you go anywhere. Red State Talk Radio is now available as a voice command on your Amazon Echo and Echo Dot by simply saying, Alexa, play Red State Talk Radio. Red State Talk Radio on TuneIn. Turn to every single American. Now, we've been hearing all these stories about sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities that... You can now find us on the Amazon Echo and Echo Dot on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and we also have the phone apps in the App Store for your particular phone. And just in case we activated your Echo Dot, Alexa, stop. CL, back with you on this great day in the USA. Special guest this hour, Eric Rush, author of the book Negrophilia. However, there was a, a book that you wrote some years ago now that talked about how uh, Mexico possibly could be annexed. Eric, take us into your thought pattern uh, back in those days, because now in 2019, uh, that has become an idea that I know is batted around in some halls in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Talk to us about what were you thinking when you wrote that book? Well, I I wrote that book um Sort of, it wasn't. It wasn't at all tongue in cheek. I, I I didn't put it forth as something that I thought would actually happen, but I explained how it could be done. And my rationale was this: you know, there was a lot. You know, we go through these periods where the border becomes an issue, and then people tend to forget about it because that's how news cycles go. But um, I, I wrote the book with the rationale that okay. So if there are so many people from Mexico who want to come here because of economic reasons, and if we are so dependent economically on the efforts of these people who want to come here, um, and since we have such a problem with the legal path to citizenship, hence we have all these you know, undocumented people coming over, why don't we just draft an agreement with Mexico in that they would be annexed, they would become a part of this, the United States, um, we, they would start, you know, they would adopt our constitution, their states would be added on, and we wouldn't have, you know, all this illegal immigration problem. Uh, the laws would be more 
uh, well, I mean, it would be more by the rule of law in terms of how things worked economically there as opposed to the, you know, sort of the thoroughly corrupt system they have down there. So so the aggregate, um, you know, uh, economic viability of the average Mexican would go up, you know, exponentially and everyone would be happy now. You know, there are so many factors involved in something like that, that, uh, you know, I, I did say, hey, guys, you know, I don't think anyone will ever really go for this, but it could be done. And I still think that, quite honestly, it could be done. There are probably more uh, forces in Mexico and in the ruling, you know, the ruling class and the ruling parties in Mexico than you'd see opposition over here, but it still could be done and it would completely eliminate, you know, I mean, if you have an exponential rise in the standard living for the average Mexican, they're not going to need to come across the border illegally to get jobs because they'll have tons of jobs there. The natural resources alone that that country has, if, if they, if they weren't so corrupt politically, I mean, they could be, they could be one of the, the the strongest countries economically in the hemisphere. And they could be, folks. There's no question about it. Mexico is an incredibly mineral-rich country. And uh, it, it, it is. Uh, I know that when we think about Mexico, we think about absolute poor people. And yes, there are children playing on trash heaps as I speak, or at least looking for food in trash heaps as we speak right now. And if you try and give one of them something to eat, a coin, a dollar or whatever, your car, if you're traveling through Mexico, will be absolutely swamped with children. You will be overrun with children who are who are hungry. No question about it. And, 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 and the thing that uh, really struck me about it, Eric, is that, yeah, uh, that could happen. That, that could actually be a viable uh, solution to our problem and also when we talk about Guatemala and Honduras who we send hundreds of thousands yep. of dollars uh, yep. uh, millions of dollars to every year uh, and yet their people are trying to get here why are we wasting this money when what they want is America let's give them America Eric I'm all on board with that thought although like you said chances of that ever coming about would be tangled up in, in our feet would get tangled up in the political uh, elitist who want it to remain like it is. I don't know if you got a chance to see the president's uh, address uh, in his kickoff announcement uh, last night, but Eric, you and I are both news pundits, and we both uh, pay close attention to what's going on in this country in the news cycles. CNN, MSNBC uh, did not cover uh, the announcement of a sitting president, uh, his speech yeah. last night. Fox, I think, was the only main media outlet that carried uh, the president's speech in its entirety. Is that a sign of the absolute vitriolic attitude toward this president? Is that ever going to change? Uh, well, it is definitely uh a stellar example of their vitriol and hatred. And no, I don't think that it's going to change because it's, you know, been a long time coming. You know, I mean, when I was a young man, I, I believed that the, um, 
the mainstream press was largely liberal, but there were they weren't shameless about it. Now they don't seem to have any bones at all with being essentially, uh, you know, the the propaganda arm of not just the Democrat Party, but the radical leftist faction, the Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, you know, faction of the Democrat Party. And it, you know, obviously these news organizations are more concerned with their ideology than they are with profit because they've been hemorrhaging viewers and, and readers and listeners and so forth, depending on the, you know, the venue, whether it's TV or, or what have you for, for years and years and years. And you probably saw the, um, the articles this week of just how abysmal uh, CNN's ratings have become. It's like there's five people watching, and they're still uh, they're still doing what they're doing. I mean, you would think, looking at those numbers, and, and you know, anyone at CNN would be like, you know, hey, let's cover Trump. At least we'll get some viewers. No, they're not going to do it. They hate him too much. Wow. And you know what, folks, Eric, you and I are both uh, old enough to remember uh, uh, not only Dan Rather, uh, but Walter Cronkite. At one time, I really wanted to uh, try to pursue the type of career that Dan Rather had. I never will forget uh, his picture on the uh, front of Time magazine holding the globe in his hand. And, Eric, uh, I was uh, just uh, in high school when that happened, about to go to college. And uh, I said, hey, that is where it's got to be if you're going to go into journey, if you're going to journalism. But they at least, and both of them were liberals, Cronkite and uh, Rather were both liberals, but there was some type of balance that they would bring to the news cycle. That is, that seemingly is absolutely lost, uh, as you were point, just pointing out uh, in, in your last statement today. Eric, where did we lose that? When did that go away that even from liberal pundits in the news that we could could uh, at least get some some semblance of fairness in their reporting. Yeah. Well, two things happened. One, um, you, you mentioned that that that, that uh, Walter Cronkite and Dan rather were liberals, and you know some of the the big news names that we mentioned. But I was that reminded me that you know my parents were you know archetypal New York liberals, but the archetypal New York liberal back in the 1960s is very different from what a liberal is today. So, you know, a liberal today is far more to the left. Then you also have the incremental insinuation of people who were farther and farther to the left getting into journalism. And so you went, you got, you went from a a place where journalism had yeah, there's a lot of people who were liberal and some conservatives in it to people who got into it because they were ideological leftists. You know, it's the same thing as the communists back in the 50s, you know, the 1950s saying, hey, we've got to take over education. We've got to take over politics. We've got to take over the press. Well, what we're seeing in the press now is it's been thoroughly inundated with ideological leftists who do not care about, I mean, 
Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite and those guys, I used to look at them as a young, as a kid and a young man and think that that was just such an honorable profession because they were, you know, they were keeping our, the people who govern us honest, right? And that's gone. I mean, they're, these people are propagandists and they're shameless about it. You know, I don't know how some of them get get up and get out of bed in the morning. You know, you you bring up an incredible point. Uh, I was reading something the other day. It was just a quote uh, that said, uh, "We can't raise our children like our parents raised us because the world that we were raised in." is no long no longer exist. Eric, you you, you mentioned it yourself. Uh, your parents, my parents were were liberals as well. Uh, you know, as I was growing up, I'm a two term president of the NAACP, Garland, Texas. Before uh-huh. I had an epiphany, uh, and 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 uh, the, the type of epiphany that led Eric and I uh, both to appear in my film, uh, Runaway Slave. And Eric, you you mentioned something in uh, the movie that is still talked about even today. In fact. Uh, the movie that Eric and I, uh, that I'm referring to, where Eric and I uh, are, are both uh, uh, showcased, it, it 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 was it, it is the it was the groundbreaker to the Blexit and uh, exits and all these type things that are that are going on today. Uh, we had to run away from the plantation to give these these days uh, the, the the ability to walk away. But when we talk about the uh, transition of um, uh, liberalism in this country. We are talking about something that has indeed affected our educational system. You mentioned education. Has our educational system then uh, been thoroughly uh, uh, co-opted by progressive liberal thought? Will that ever, is there a chance that conservative thought will ever infiltrate uh, the halls of academia again in this country? Eric Rush, give me your, your opinion on that. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if people, you know, it's it's great to see, you know, the 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 Blexit thing, and it's great to see, you know, um, unapologetic black Trump supporters, and it's you know, it's great to see things like that, and 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 that people are overall people are starting to wake up to what's really going on in the beltway and what's been going on for years. Um, But the only way I see that education is going to change is, is, is when people start, start really voting um, with those, those things in mind and also uh, taking that, you know, it's got to go from the top down and it's got to go from the bottom up. You know, people, uh, are very lackadaisical or tend to be about who's on their school board. Hey, you know, you can go talk to the guy. What kind of person are you? Well, you know, if the guy's a fire-breathing socialist, you probably want to get some neighbors together and say, hey, you know what? We don't want this guy on our school board. Similarly, you know, we need to start voting for people, sending people to Congress and sending people, um, you know, to the Senate who are not just these folks who are going to tell us anything but and who are going to just get their place at the table and 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 basically you know do what everybody else is doing but saying okay we're sending you in to do this you don't do it we're going to primary you out next time and when that's happened a few times 
I think we'll start getting candidates who are a lot more sincere about what they do when they get to Washington. Eric, I know that you're familiar with polling and polling data and that type of thing. We're seeing numbers now that indicate that Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, even Elizabeth Warren are, are all ahead of uh, Donald Trump as far as the race for the White House in 2020. We know that Joe Biden, even though he and Bernie Sanders are in the same age bracket, uh, they are absolutely on, on polar opposite ends of where Joe would like to be, as even Nancy Pelosi would like to be in a different place than where Bernie Sanders and uh, Kamala Harris would like to take the Democrat Party. Joe Biden has never been successful in his bids for presidential uh, nomination of his own party. Why have we come to it? Why, in your opinion, is it it possible? Is it a desperation move uh, for them to uh, unite their wagons behind Joe Biden? Is his candidacy one that will ever get out of the gate? I just don't see it happening. But what do you think about it? Well, it's, you know, it's possible. I mean, he he has been around for a long time. He does have a lot of friends. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of people in the Democrat power structure who think that he's the only one who could be who could be Trump. I, you know, I, I personally don't think that that's that's true. But I think that the you mentioned the word desperation. There is so much desperation that's coming out of the Democrat Party right now, whether you're talking about the old guard or whether you're talking about the Ocasio-Cortez access, which are out and out communists, if you ask me. Uh, But you can see it. The desperation is also is almost palpable. And I think that's why. Well, I know that's why you're getting so much of the inflammatory rhetoric and the hatred and the fighting. I mean, people are beating themselves up, you know, beating each other up at some of these um, these rallies. And, you know, we haven't seen that kind of thing for a long time. And I think that this reflects the 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 left belief and hopefully it's you know a correct one that if they don't if they don't retain what they've gained and and really um implement socialism using people who really don't know what it is among the electorate that in a few years they're going to be done because people are starting to wake up And they are beginning to wake up. We're on with Eric Rush, author of the book Negrophilia, and uh, it is the uh, statement, it is the premier statement on uh, the state of the black mind in America. If, in fact, you ever wanted to investigate that for yourself uh, and uh, actually have conversation to build bridge with others in this country, be sure to pick up Eric Rush's book Negrophilia. When I return with him after the book, break. Uh, Eric, I want to switch gears just a little bit and ask a question that is seldom talked about, and that is if Barack Obama or a Barack Obama-like figure could run again, even in the midst of Donald Trump being as successful as he has been in these last two and a half years, could that candidate actually pull off a win against this economic juggernaut of a president that we have. Does the Democrat Party have anyone closely resembling uh, 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 Obama 
on their team at this point in time. We're going to talk to my guest here this hour, Eric Rush, about that very thing when we return. There's lots more of the C.L. Bryant Show coming your way this hour. And if you don't get the full two hours of the C.L. Bryant Show, be sure to download the free C.L. Bryant Show app onto your favorite device. All of the shows are cataloged there. Uh, also, go to our website. Website, VCLBryanShow.com, VCLBryanShow.com, and come along with us every day from 12.05 noon until 2 p.m. in the East. We'll be right back. You thought I was worth saving, so you came and changed my life. You thought I was worth keeping, so you cleaned me up inside. Red State Talk Radio is now available as a voice command on your Amazon Echo and Echo Dot by simply saying, Alexa, play Red State Talk Radio. Red State Talk Radio on TuneIn. Turn to every single American. Now, we've been hearing all these stories about sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities that... You can now find us on the Amazon Echo and Echo Dot on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and we also have the phone apps in the App Store for your particular phone. And just in case we activated your Echo Dot, Alexa, stop. Stand up for America. Then Americans, stand up, stand up, stand up. God bless you. God bless America. I do the best I can. Always lend a helping hand. And for the flag I stand. Independence Day coming up on the 4th of July. 143 years America will celebrate this year of independence as a nation. Get D-Rock's latest song, latest release, I Am an American. I was blessed to um, lend my voice to the opening of that song, a great American song. Play it loud and proud at your 4th of July gatherings. I Am an American by D-Rock. Wherever music is sold on with me is author, uh, news commentator, Eric Rush. And uh, Eric, uh, it appears that there, uh, the polls that I'm seeing around the country, and particularly one coming out of North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, is saying that um, Joe Biden is favored by black people 52% to, I think, um, uh, uh, the president's 46%, and the others divide up the, the crumbs that are left uh, behind as far as uh, favorability. I don't, I, for the life of me, Eric, I cannot see what it is black folks would see in a Joe Biden candidacy except the uh, nostalgic relationship that he has with Barack Obama, who is yet to actually throw him any type of favorable bone other than to say that he was a good vice president. Is there any rhyme or reason as to why uh, the, 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 the cartel of black vote would still be cohesive behind a Joe Biden in the midst of economic prosperity in this country that black people are beginning to experience under Trump? Talk to us about it. 
Well, while we're likely to see higher uh, numbers in support for a Democrat just because of the history and because the Democrats and the left have been so successful in keeping so many uh, blacks on that, you know, political plantation, as it were. Um, Despite that, I I think that you're going to see unprecedented support for for Trump among among blacks uh, in 2020. Um, You know, you mentioned prior to the break uh, that would, you know, another candidate like Obama be able to give Trump a run for his money? And is there one? I don't see there one as being one right now. But uh, interestingly enough, in the column I'm working on for this week, I say that our biggest danger from the left and from these people like Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, people who are that far left, our biggest danger will come when Trump leaves office in, uh, say, 2025, if if he's reelected. You know, our electorate, unfortunately, tends to be have a very short memory and is also very superficial in the way they vet candidates. We all know that Barack Obama was cleverly marketed as a as a moderate centrist kind of a Bill Clinton sort of a, you know, on the continuum of left to right when he really was a radical leftist. And um, my contention has been for years and continues to be if he hadn't been black, he would not have been elected. Now, it would be very easy with those set for with people's sensibilities for them to put out a a black candidate or a female candidate or even a gay candidate. And you're going to have a lot of people out there who superficially vet candidates say to them, oh, well, I'm going to vote for this guy so they can't call me a bigot or so they can't call me a homophobe or a sexist or whatever. That's a really, really dangerous modality to operate in. But it is evident by the fact that Obama got elected twice and that nobody is even going to question or criticize his record to this day for the same reason that the identity politics card is going to remain a very dangerous one for us for the foreseeable future. And folks, that is absolutely uh, right. And and I do believe that is the case. Let's speak to uh, something that you alluded to, and that is the, the, the white vote and the identity politics and also white guilt. Um, I'm, I'm seeing so often that uh, white people do vote, uh, and, and of course, uh, black folks who are upwardly mobile do vote against against many times their own uh, economic interest. And we do see yep. that uh, in this country. And you folks, you're, you're on, we're on with uh, someone who broke uh, nationally for the first time uh, the relationship that uh, Senator, then Senator Obama had with radical leftist pastor Jeremiah Wright. Why is it that people then will not call out in 2019 why is it this white guilt, and I know you can speak to this, uh, is so 
pervasive within the American fabric that white folks are so afraid of being called ugly names uh, if, in fact, they make a political misstep. It does Is that a tool, still a tool of the left that was effectively used by Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and many others around the country to keep yeah. them in check? Yeah. Is that still in use, Eric Rush? It, it is still very much in use, whether you have a politician or, or who's in front of a microphone, you know, continually or whether it's somebody who works in a cubicle, you know, and they're and they're white. If some if some issue comes up that, you know, is on the topic of race and you you threaten them with, you know, being called a, a racist or a bigot. Typically, that person's going to capitulate, um, you know, unless unless that person is is very very strong willed and very very well informed. Uh, it's like we've been conditioned uh, to say, okay, well, I'm going to capitulate because you know a racist is the worst thing that I can possibly be, and and it's just been it's just been very widely used. I mean, that's why they're. That's why they're using it against Trump. I, I mean, it, it, accusations of racism against Trump are completely basic, baseless. Yet you can walk out into the street and stick a microphone in front of someone's face, and they'll say, "Well, Trump's a racist," and you say, "Okay, give me an example of how he's a racist," and no one can come up with one viable answer to that. I mean, it's a very, very potent weapon, and the left is – they're using it even more now than they have over the past 30, 40 years. You know, you mentioned the office cubicle and offices that have those type things where you have all types of people working there, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites, what have you. Uh, it always boils down when it comes to office conversations. Uh, let's just say Jimmy's a black guy and Jerry's uh, the white guy. Uh, it always boils down if it comes to race. Let's not talk about that because Jimmy may not like it. And and that's where so many yep. people are in this country today. Even sometimes, Eric, and I just laugh about it when I, I'm in these situations. People today still believe that uh, you have to walk on eggshells, and, 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 and many times you do, uh, around uh, a yeah. person just because of the color of their skin. Now, as broad as our thinking is, you and me, as broad as our thinking is on various topics, uh, and certainly race, Eric, why would, is it even sensible for a white person not to just speak their mind so we can have an honest conversation about race when it comes to that topic. Is there healing in, and just let's talk, let's just say what's on our mind. Talk to us. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that white people should speak their mind. I mean, a white person knows whether they're, whether they harbor um, animosity towards blacks or whether they're racist or not. And they, they know that whether they are not, they're racist is not predicated upon what someone else says. You know, you see that's we've been letting the left drive the dialogue for so long. You know, a person is a racist if they exhibit 
racist behavior, not because some lefty points at them and says you're a racist. You know, we've it's the same. They're using the same tactic with, um, you know, the supposed uh, gay rights LGBTQ thing. You know, it's like they get to dictate what makes you a homophobe. And in the end, what it comes down to is capitulate to every notion that we push across the table or you're a homophobe. Well, that's ridiculous. And that's the same thing that that they're that they've been doing vis-a-vis uh, blacks versus whites uh, for, for 30 years. If you are not for reparations, you're a racist. Well, you and I both know that's ridiculous, but that's the argument they're going to use. Mark my word. And it is. Eric, one more time. We give us uh, how we can get in touch with you and how to get a hold of you and your work. And again, thank you for being on with us. Tell us again how to get a hold of Eric Rush. Well, it's been my pleasure. And thanks again for having me on. You can reach me at ericrush.com, E-R-I-K-R-U-S-H.com. And you can read my column tonight at WorldNetDaily, WND.com. Eric, again, uh, continue to fight the good fight. I know that you will because you are. Keep writing uh, those brilliant thoughts and putting them out there for all of us to enjoy and also percolate as we journey together in our American experience. And again, thank you. Thank you so much, friend, for being on with me here today. And thank you. I'm CL. This is the CL Bryant Show. That was my good buddy, Eric Rush. And uh, hey, folks, uh, this this is the type of conversation. This conversation is the conversation that uh, if we're going to be honest here in this country, if we're ever going to heal in this country uh, from the wounds that, yes, our country uh, did inflict upon all of us. In our inception, in our infancy, we fell, we stumbled, we did some silly stuff. We didn't always get it right in America as we were growing, as we were maturing as a nation. But friends, if you think that somehow we have not come a mighty long way in this country uh, as far as human relations, race relations are concerned, uh, politically Otherwise, uh, you, you, you are grossly, grossly mistaken. However, uh, there are people who still would want us to relive and live in the remnants and the uh, portraits of the past in American snapshots. They would want us to do that. Refuse to do it. We're going to talk about uh, more about this on the other side of the break, opening the new hour about uh, what is a racist, what uh, creates a racist. And uh, we, we need to talk about this type of subject honestly. And we need to talk about this without the lens of progressive liberalism. How long do we talk about reparations? How long do we talk about uh, the lynchings that went on uh, in uh, the past? Do we do that into perpetuity? How long do we do that before it becomes a useless conversation, only uh, good for uh, steering up and ginning up? Emotional attitudes that are not productive for our American future. I'm CL. This is the CL Bryant Show. Back at you after the news.
timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.